zebras only react physiologically, you know, heart beating fast, you know, muscles tense, etc., when they're being chased by a lion, like when it's literally like they're going to die. And humans show that sort of a stress response all the time. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Josh here from Two Fit. Thanks for dropping in, tuning in the show. Um, if you have been listening to the show before, then you know it's been a while. So it's been about a year since we uploaded a podcast. And if you're just now dropping in for the first time, I really appreciate it. I normally have uh, my co-founder, co-host Jake. He has since stepped away from the operation. He's doing great. We're still awesome friends, but I will be solo behind the mic moving forward. So um, other than that, everything at Two Fits going awesome. And I'm just really pumped to get some new episodes out. I have some in the queue with some guests as well as some new types of shows, which are gonna be a little bit shorter, six to 12 minutes long, touching on some different topics, some nutrition topics, some training topics, maybe sometimes just random topics. So um, would also like to get in some Q&A with you guys if you have questions. And yeah, just wanna try some new formats and um, would love to hear your feedback and thoughts. So that's uh, without any further jabbering, I think that's all the news. And uh, let's get into today's episode. So the guest on this first episode back is Dr. Katherine Sanderson. She is the Manuel Family Professor of Life Sciences in Psychology at Amherst College. College. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology with a specialization in health and development from Stanford and also has a master's and doctoral degree in psychology from Princeton. She's published over 25 journal articles and book chapters in addition to four college textbooks, middle school and high school textbooks, and a trade book on parenting. That's a lot of writing. Uh, Her latest trade book, which is what we cover in this podcast, is called The Positive Shift, which examines how mindset and our mindset influences happiness, health, and even how long we live. In 2012, she was actually named one of the country's top 300 professors by the Princeton Review. So hopefully you can see why I was pretty excited to have her on the show because I love this topic and I love her book. Um, So that's The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity, which is what we cover in this episode. Um, Something I, I read the book before the show and something I really appreciate and like about her book is how it breaks down the science of thought and shows how our mindset and thought patterns really exert this influence on our psychological and physical health. It's not just a book on theory. It's really practical. It's research-backed, not just like Dr. Feelgood type stuff. So um, a couple of the highlights that we cover in this book are like why spending time on Facebook makes us feel sad and lonely. I'm sure that either all of us or we know people that have experienced that. Um, Why expensive name brand medicine provides better pain relief than generic stuff, even though they share the same ingredients. Um, How to be happier and healthier in our life and relationships. Where our mindset actually comes from, how it develops, how to be aware and tune into that, notice our thought patterns, and then how to correct them or improve them over time. Um, How social media in general is impacting our happiness and a different way of approaching social, social media that Uh, Dr. Sanderson gets into that I found quite useful. Um, Also managing expectations, how that can lead to happier outcomes, and then investing in experiences rather than things. So cover a lot around mindset. She really provides a great framework moving forward. Um, But I think most importantly is like how my takeaway is like how no matter what our natural tendencies are, because we all have them, Um, With practice, according to Dr. Sanderson, we can make minor tweaks in our mindset that will ultimately improve the quality and longevity of our life, which is what I know we're all looking for. So without further ado, enjoy the show. All right, Dr. Sanderson, thanks for coming on the show. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, so I read I read through your book and just thought it was awesome. And it, my mind was just going like all over the place with things we could potentially talk about. I made so many notes, so many highlights. I'd actually like to open up with a quote from your book because I feel like mindset, this this kind of embodies what a lot of people think of mindset. And this was, this is it right in your introduction. So this was like when you were speaking, this lady walks up to you, right? And so you were talking about happiness in this talk and she walks up and she says, um, well, first she compliments you on the, the talk and, and she says, I just figured that anyone who talked about happiness for an hour 
would be all about rainbows and kittens, and that by the end of the hour, I would want to strangle you. (laughs) It's such an incredible compliment, but um, I think it's so true to how so many people think of mindset. Right. That's a really good example. And I will say, when I started working on this book, I knew how I was going to open it because I really felt that her comment epitomizes what I'm trying to do, that that many people see a book on like happiness and whatever, and they think, oh, the person is going to be, you know, all full of rainbows and kittens and everything is, you know, happy and put a smiley face on and whatever. And I actually think that I couldn't have written the book if I was like that, because I have benefited tremendously in my own life from learning about ways to find greater happiness, which doesn't come to me naturally. And I think her quote really epitomizes the idea that we have some control over what we do. And if we're not naturally happy, there are things we can all do to find greater happiness. Yeah, for sure. What what really led you down this path of happiness? Because you're obviously a psychologist. You've done research in many different sectors of that field. But just give give us a little background on kind of what came, like what really moved you to write this book. So I do research on sort of two different areas. One set of area is um, on relationship satisfaction. So how do people find happiness in their friendships and their marriages and their dating relationships and so on. And the other set of research that I've been working on looks at health related behaviors. So things like disordered eating, you know, alcohol use, you know, safer sex behavior and so on. And, and those seem like two really different areas, you know, relationships and health behaviors. And over the last decade or so within the field of psychology, it became clear that those things were actually really connected because how we feel about our relationships is actually very, very linked to our health-related behaviors. And what I like to do in my own research and writing and talking is I like to study issues, look at the research, conduct research, but I really want to do it about things that matter. So not just sort of, you know, esoteric things that psychology researchers can share back and forth, but things that have real and practical implications for people's lives. And my goal in writing this book is to give people the research evidence underlying things that we know can make us happier. Um, Somebody put a a quote on like Goodreads or, you know, something on a blog or a comment and they said, you know, they really liked the book. And they said, there was a bit too much of the research studies in the book. And of course, like, I love that compliment. Because I, the research for me is like, otherwise it's just like, oh, my opinion. Like I'm just this validation. Yeah. And I'm going to share my idea with you. It's not my idea. Like, this is not my idea. This is a huge amount of research that lots of really smart people, not me, have done. And I'm reading and synthesizing and sharing because we know that it works in terms of science. Yeah. I love that approach with the book. Like, I I find that very useful because it does bring that sense of validation. And there's very, very there's quite a few different types of studies, you know, with different types of people and different situations. And so when you look at that, like broad scope, um, I think it really provides a ton of validation and depth, you know, to the book when you're trying to understand this topic. And clearly, you know, that was my goal was to really say, okay, what does the research say that it's not just like my gut instinct or my opinion, what does science tell us? And I think that's so important for people to know that this isn't just a theory. This is a theory that has actually paid out in terms of, you know, in some cases, as I describe in the book, people actually living longer lives, you know, Mm -hmm. people being healthier, people being happier in their marriages and so on. So information that really we all can use. Yeah, absolutely. What, can you define like what mindset is? Because I know that's a very... It can be a very like in some manner like a woo topic for people or like oh mindset like it's not it's not tangible but but it is and like how would how would you define mindset So I think the easiest definition is it's really about our thought patterns that we all have sort of characteristic thought patterns about how we perceive the world and some of us have sort of very optimistic you know positive thought patterns and some people have more negative thought patterns I gave a talk a few years ago And during the Q&A, a woman raised her hand and she said, 
Well, I just think, you know, all of this stuff is very easy because, you know, whenever I'm stuck in a horrible traffic jam, I just take a minute to take some deep breaths and I look out the window and watch the sunset. And I just feel, you know, so happy. And I, and I looked at her and I said, you really didn't need to come to this talk because you're already doing a great yeah. job. Anybody stuck in a traffic jam who's like, look at the sun, I, I, they're, they're doing it perfectly. Um, and that's an example of mindset though. So her mindset was there's a bad thing, you know, traffic jam, you know, congestion, whatever. And she's happy and peaceful. And we can all think about other people who would be, you know, frustrated, who would be anxious, who would have road rage, you know, who would be again, um, much more hypersensitive to that in a negative way. And that's really the example about mindset. How do we think about the world and people do so in characteristically different ways. It can even get into like different mental models, right? Like really broken down into that based on like situations. Absolutely. And so, you know, we all are triggered in terms of our mindset by things we see in the media. So one of the things that, that I think is so very salient is that in our culture, in Western culture, there's so many negative views about aging. So we see people who are aging as, you know, decrepit and wrinkled, you know, and gray hair and, you know, lose vitality and develop memory problems and so on. And that then develops this mindset of, oh, aging is something to be feared. And I shouldn't want to grow older because, you know, it'll be so bad. And there are other countries in which aging is seen as, you know, full of wisdom and experience. And that's a much more positive view about aging. We can think about stereotypes that we have for girls versus boys and the jobs they should do and, you know, their their sort of temperamental dispositions. And those are also mindsets that we have about what are appropriate gender norms that can trap kids in particular ways into who they should become based on mindset. There's actually uh, made me think one of your comments there made me think there's a skincare company Um it was actually started by a e-commerce guy uh, named Ezra Fat Firestone, but his company kind of flips that messaging on its head. It's called like Boom Cosmetics, and it's specifically targeted or like the demographic is fifty plus women. And it's hey, aging is beautiful. Like this should enhance your like. It's not de wrinkle de you know like it's the marketing and the messaging, and it's all organic, super clean products. But it actually flips that like norm on its head like the the norm of what you hear in the media it's it's pretty cool that's a great example i've never heard about that but that's a perfect example of how you can flip the norm flip the mindset and we need more things like that is mindset more influenced by genetics or is it learned or where do we really develop that because like even you know as a parent of um two little ones you see like day one, their personalities, right? And you see how different they are. And so is that mindset more of a learned response? Is it just inherent personality? Is it genetics? Where is a lot of that basis coming from? It's probably all of, all of the above. So there's certainly is research and we're actually learning more and more about this with, you know, growing trends in terms of genetics there is more and more awareness of the power of genetics in terms of influencing personality. So there are people who are generally more optimistic, generally more pessimistic, and that's very true. It's also the case that we learn from our environment very clearly. So people who grow up with parents who make negative explanations or attributions for things that happen may be more likely to develop those sort of negative expectations. So it's probably both genetics and environment. Okay. So there, one of my favorite quotes, um, as kind of a segue into some of, some of the deeper topics here, one of my favorite quotes is what you think you become. And, um, it seems like all of your research and especially this book is really online, like in par with that. Um, mm -hmm. it also, the, the story that you had of the lady in the car, reminds me so my co-founder Jake and I we have this like ongoing inside joke um, where hey man it's an opportunity and it, this started from he actually started it and it was I think it was about a story with his dog keeping him up all night and it, and then everything that would happen like during our days and stuff just hey man it's an opportunity I mean something terrible could happen you know and it, it turned into a joke um, but it's so true you know 
Well, and, and that's actually a powerful example of mindset, right? Because it could be this terrible thing happens, you know, you get fired or whatever. And it's like, you know, oh my gosh, this is a calamity and I'm going to be unemployed or, you know, homeless or whatever. Or it can be, this is an opportunity to explore a new career, to develop new talents, you know, to move to whatever. And so that's a perfect example of mindset using the a negative experience and seeing it as an opportunity, not a disaster. Right. And I think even at a very, very like simple level, it's, it could be even be an opportunity for patience, right? Like to practice patience if you're, cause most of our day to days are th- those things that like really heighten our, you know, anxiety and stuff. Most of those things can boil down, I think to very simple practices of, Hey, this is a moment to just practice being calm, you know, being aware, being patient. Like I do think that, um, it, it is all a mindset, you know, it's being aware of those moments for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the, the things that I think is most important, um, and, I, and I talk about this some, um, is there's a wonderful book that I didn't write called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And, and it's by a neuroscientist at Stanford. And basically his idea is that zebras only react physiologically, you know, heart beating fast, you know, muscles tense, et cetera when they're being chased by a lion, like when it's literally like they're going to die. And humans show that sort of a stress response all the time, right? (laughs) You know, I've got too many emails in my inbox. I'm stuck in traffic. You know, I have a blind date. You know, my mortgage is due, whatever. And that sort of constant anxiety about really relatively trivial things, um, to me, that's almost one of the most helpful things is that to kind of take a minute and say, okay, you know, this bad thing happened in a year. Am I going to care about it? You know, like in a year, is this going to be this, you know, horrible thing or is it not? I had an awful thing like um, three weeks ago, my computer hard drive crashed oh, and I lost, funny. I mean, I lost a book manuscript. Oh my goodness. I literally lost a book manuscript I was working on. And it was bad. I mean, it was bad. And, but I was really pretty much like, you know, I, I worked on that book and I still have my notes and, you know, I can go back and, you know, recreate. And my husband was like, you're taking this so well, (laughs) you know, in the scheme of things. It could be worse. It could be, you know, whatever. And, and, but it was really an example is that there are times in which I would have just been, you know, morose for days of, you know, those perfect sentences I'm never going to get back, you know, et cetera. And so again, I think that we can all learn with practice to try to adopt a more positive, less, oh my gosh, this is life or death when it's not life or death. Sure. And there's something that you point out later in the book that I thought was extremely important because a lot of people, and you've probably experienced some of this feedback, is, okay, I, I get it, I want to practice that, but, you know, what a, what about actually dealing with things if they are serious? And you highlight something, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was, happiness isn't to be overly optimistic and put your head in the sand. It actually, happy people also face things, they see them as they are, and then deal with them. And that further contributes to their happiness. Yeah, that's a really important point, because happiness isn't being like delusional, right? I mean, that that's a key. And, and we can certainly think about things um, in terms of what are things that if you're aware of it, you can solve. So there's the wonderful expression from AA, which is the first step of admitting you have a problem. And so the first step is admitting you have a problem. So if you are in a relationship that isn't making you happy or a job that isn't making you happy, the the strategy is not to be like, oh, this is actually wonderful when it's not. The first step is saying this is really not good and what can I do about it? And and I think that's what's really important is saying, okay, this isn't going well or this isn't you know working well what are my things for doing it? And and I think the challenge is, is that happy people, because they have confidence that they can do things and that things will go okay, they have the courage to kind of face those things. And it means that when a bad thing happens, they can bounce back from it because they have confidence in their ability to make a change and to effectuate a better outcome. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a a great... um 
like thing to discuss because people can just see it's like the whole rainbows thing, right? Like, oh, you just ignore stuff and just be happy about it. No, no, like you can become happier by actually dealing with prioritizing and executing on those things that are kind of in your, your roadblocks. Um, we obviously live in a society today where I think the opportunities to truly be happy are the greatest they've ever been. But most people, I think as a society, we seem, at least we're told, but I do think it's a reality that most people are unhappy. What are some of these things that you think are really contributing to this unhappiness? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting and important question. And, and I will, I will say that one of the things that has occurred to me the most about it, uh, I have a son who's a senior in high school and, you know, so I'm surrounded by, and I have a daughter who's a freshman in high school. So I'm around, surrounded by, you know, people who are going through the, the college admissions thing. And the college admissions, you know, pressure is tremendous. And we hear about that all the time. And, you know, there's, you know, um, interviews with, you know, the kid who got into all eight IVs or, you know, whatever. And there's this constant sort of concern about how much pressure and stress kids are going through. And I see it all the time in parents around me. And what strikes me as so very silly about it, and again, I say this as someone who is a college professor, what strikes me as so silly about it is that there's so many fabulous colleges all across the country, big schools, small schools, you know, highly selective schools, less selective schools, public schools, private schools, universities, colleges, community colleges. And I know students and faculty at all sorts of different schools and one can have a very successful life, career, you know, et cetera, going to any number of different institutions. And I think it's so funny when parents and kids and teachers put this massive pressure on kids that, you know, your whole life happiness is determined by, you know, the letter you get, or I guess now the email you get on April 15th, you know, and that's like a do or die moment. It's, it's just really the silliest thing that I can imagine. And I think that part of the contribution to that is social media. I mean, I think where people are on social media. And so we have much more insight into other people's supposed lives. And I say supposed because of course, what people put on social media are all the successes, you know, oh, you know, I just ran the Boston Marathon in under three hours. And oh, my whole family went to Tahiti for two weeks and loved each other. And here are my perfect kids. And, you know, my son, you know, was athlete of the week and, you know, whatever. And we don't put on the things that are sad or that are struggles. And when I see things on social media in which people are owning sadness and, and authentic loss, I'm really impressed because it, it's really sort of saying my life isn't perfect. Um, I was on Facebook earlier today and one of my friends from high school posted a link to an article from the Washington Post. And the article was on cutting off contact with my mother. That was the article. And my, my high school friend posted that article and then said, cutting off contact with my father was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, but it's made me much happier. And I was sort of blown away that yeah. that's a total own of my life isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't speak to my dad. And, and that's rare. Because most of the time what we see on social media is best dad ever, right. you know, et cetera. And, um, and I think that makes people feel worse about their own lives. And, and that sort of comparison, I, I think, hurts many people's happiness. You cite some of the research in your book that being on Facebook leads to unhappiness. And I think it's that's that story is being told a little bit more now where I think it's common sense to some. They're like, yeah, it's, you know, you hop on and all you see is, like you said, everyone's fabulous vacation and new dog and baby. And are there any tools or like strategies that you have encountered or practiced to use social media in a positive way? Yeah. So that's a really important question. So one, I think it's really important for people to be authentic on social media. That I think the problem is really when people post their fabulous, you know, pictures of their vacation, they're also not posting the, you know, 
yeah, you know, my luggage got lost and, you know, I just spent a fortune, you know, you know, doing whatever. And, you know, I'm jet lagged and the kids fought, you know, nonstop on the plane or, you know, whatever that people only post the good. So I think one is trying to be authentic on, on Facebook I, and social media in general is helpful. I think it's also really important for people to be aware, Hey, this isn't their actual life. This is what they are showing us is their life. And, you know, I say to my kids all the time, I've got three teenage children, you know, I'm old enough that when I was in high school, I never had to see pictures of parties online. I wasn't invited to you know that wasn't an option and I'm glad I'm really glad. And so part of it is, is sort of recognizing that when other people post these fabulous pictures, it doesn't mean that their lives are fabulous. It means they're posting about their lives. And so sort of being able to do that disconnect of what we're seeing from the reality, I think helps people recognize, okay, wait, you know, I could also just post beautiful, you know, family pictures. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that they have a perfect life. That just means that's the life they're showing us. And we have to really keep that in mind. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great point. There's something that like Gary Vaynerchuk says that I really like, so I can't take credit for it, but it's, uh, he says, social media didn't change us, it exposed us. And I Mm. think that's so true because I think even now today, like people can see through that, you know, oh, you're just posting these amazing photos. And if you think about it, like even from just a community perspective, it's not, it's not that social and it's certainly not normal in the physical world to only share all the great things. I mean, maybe it is at your office and the water cooler talk when you want your kids to outbeat their, you know, like that stuff and people front that, that way. But if you think about it, like what's, what's the human initial reaction when you see someone's amazing vacation they're posting of them oh good for you like that's that's the feeling i think it elicits right it's like oh fabulous great for you but if you post something raw and real it doesn't have to you don't have to expose your whole life but if you just post something real then that is going to create an emotional connection with someone and probably actually generate some conversation rather than this oh great for you your life is amazing Absolutely. And, and so you ask a question that I think I semi ignored, but um, how can we use social media for good? And so I think part of it is, is acknowledging the sadness, acknowledging loss. So my mother died um, 14 years ago and I used to stay off of social media on Mother's Day because it was just brutal. It was, you know, seeing all of these people with their, you know, moms at brunch and with flowers and, you know, whatever. And it was just devastating. It was really, you know, just a reminder of my loss, you know, shoved in my face a thousand times. And what I've now started doing is that I, on Mother's Day, I post a picture of me and my mom and then I say how much I miss her. And that, you know, it's now been 13 years or 14 years or, you know, 15 years or whatever. And then I tag all the people who I know who've also lost their moms. And, of course, the reality is that list grows, you know, every year it just gets bigger. And the number of people who respond to me and say, thank you so much for remembering and thank you so much for acknowledging that, this is a bittersweet day, you know, for those of us who are moms and have lost their moms, you know, et cetera. And that's been really powerful for me. And so I think part of it is that acknowledging when there is bad is also really helpful in can, and can give people a sense of community of like, I'm not alone in feeling like this is kind of a crappy day. There are all these other people who also feel it's a crappy day. So it's a crappy day for all of us in unison. And that actually feels supportive. Absolutely. That's, that's a great story. Thank, thank you for sharing that because that's such a great example of how you can use social media for good and build that sense of community in a way that you, you couldn't otherwise do that in the physical world by just sharing, you know, through just sharing a photo and a little comment, like helps other people out and get through that day and share something in common. I think that's, that's a great example uh, for sure. Well, I don't, one of the things that makes people feel worse about their own lives is that we feel alone. 
You know, I'm the only one who's struggling with, you know, a kid who's academically, you know, in trouble in school. I'm the only one who doesn't speak to my father. I'm the only one who, you know, whatever. Um, and, and so I think part of it is that when we feel it's just us, it feels alone and having a sense of like, wait, there are all these other people who've also, you know, experienced a miscarriage or whatever, you know, difficult things it's really powerful to be able to share that and get that sense of I'm not alone in this loss, tragedy, grief, you know, whatever. Yeah. That vulnerability can really pay off. Yes. How about, um, I'd like to talk about managing expectations because this is a topic I kind of really dove into just out of curiosity, uh, in the last few years, because it, it just seems to me that when we, because I've struggled with this personally of setting expectations and then getting frustrated that I'm not meeting, they're they're all self created. I, you know, I just had this like hit me in the face one day. I didn't, I don't remember reading anything or anything. It just like hit me one day. I'm like, I created those expect, like I built that. You know, like mm-hmm. so. Could you dive into expectations a little bit? Because that that just seems like a a quick slide of like self-disappointment. Yes. And, and I think part of that is that we talked before about how, um, we, we compare ourselves to other people around us, you know, how are they doing? But we also compare ourselves to what we could be or what we should be. And, and the challenge is, is that when we set up these like really high expectations, we can then feel disappointed when we don't actually live up to those expectations. And that's also part of sort of beating ourselves up instead of showing self-compassion. I think one of the most important things is that we all hold sort of aspirational goals, you know, whether that's, you know, personally or, you know, professionally or so on. And when those expectations aren't met, we need to sort of acknowledge that again, life went in another sort of direction that, that something has changed and that doesn't mean it's bad. There's a wonderful um, story, which I'm also not going to tell well, um, but it's, it's a story about a parent who uh, has a child who has, you know, some sort of disability, you know, maybe autism. I think it was autism. And as she described it, you know, when you're pregnant, you have this expectation about this, you know, baby and what this baby is going to be like. And she says, you know, it's like you, you know, thought you were going on this trip to Italy and you bought a guidebook about Italy and you read about Italy and you thought about Italy and what you were going to do and what you're going to see, et cetera. And you get on the plane and you land. And as it turns out, you're not in Italy, you know, you're actually in Iceland or, you know, whatever, some other country. And it's also a beautiful country. And there's also lots to do and lots to see. It's just not Italy, which you'd been thinking about. And you have to wrap your mind around Italy would have been great, but I'm not going to Italy. I'm going to Iceland and I need to embrace that. Mm-hmm. And, and I use that as, as a, again, an example of when our expectations aren't met, when life doesn't take us in the direction we'd hoped or wanted or planned, being able to say, okay, so that didn't happen. I'm going to let go of it and I'm going to embrace this new thing and do the best I can, you know, with this outcome. Um, and I, and that struck me as a wonderful sort of metaphor for adopting a new positive mindset, you know, when maybe our expectations aren't really met. Something that's, and I'd love your feedback here, but something that's worked well for me is, and some of this was tracking back to the golf coach I had for a very long time, beginning age uh, 17, 18. Um, mm-hmm. I had never, so I played golf competitively growing up and then into school and after school. And I'd always had like a swing coach, but then I started working with a new coach and it was all about the, the mind and psychology. And he had a lot of training in that field. And it was the first time I'd ever heard the term, the process and this is now, you know, 13 years ago. And I feel like that term, the process has come out a little bit more from in this, the field of psychology and athletes and stuff, but he really changed the way I think about a lot of things, not just golf and sports, but just life. And something I've kind of applied and through that thought of like expectations the last few years was it, it really made me re-examine setting goals 
and even mm-hmm. setting goals. And so I've kind of gotten away from even setting goals and not, that may sound odd to, to some people like, Oh, you shouldn't, you, you need goals. Like you need to achieve goals. I look at it now. And again, please like correct me if you think this is flawed or like, I just love your feedback here, but what's worked well for me lately is I still have these like big audacious goals, huge goals. But then really from like the starting point to there, I really don't worry about that. Like I kind of went back and looked at like, okay, I just need to enjoy the journey. And as long Mm -hmm. as I kind of put the connecting dots in place, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter when I connect the the next dot and the next dot and the next dot, as long as I'm every day working towards that or every week. Mm -hmm. And through that's like made me think back to even training with him, which was, Hey, don't go into a tournament and even worry about score. Don't worry about numbers at all. And that's, that was a lot of our practice. If you shoot 80 today or you shoot 68 today, it, it really doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. through the process, you would look back and scores would improve and, you know, disposition would improve, all that stuff. And so I've really been applying that, all those things a lot more lately and not worrying so much about the month to month or like these artificial benchmarks mm-hmm. and just knowing that like my true north in these categories is way up there. Mm-hmm. And it'll happen when it happens, but I'm just going to enjoy the journey and make sure that I'm putting in the little bit of work I can do every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's so interesting about that description is that in sports psychology, and I, I teach a class in sports psychology and I've actually written a book on sports psychology, um, researchers divide goals into process. So exactly the kind of thing you're thinking, like, you know, I'm going to work on my putt or my swing or, you know, whatever performance. So am I going to get an 80 or, you know, am I going to shoot a 68 or whatever? And then outcome, which is that, am I going to win the tournament or, you know, am I going to win the, you know, whatever. Um, and, and what research shows is that people who focus on the process, so like the lowest level, like moment to moment experience better success and greater happiness because what they're focused on is that moment to moment and not the, did I beat this other person? You know, did I win? You know, did I shoot whatever? So actually focusing on lower level sort of moment to moment goals is more effective than, um, than, than focusing only on this outcome goal. So your intuition is right on. Cool. You had a good coach. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. He's still a mentor in my life. Um, I still bounce, you know, other stuff off on business life, whatever, but it was more about the routine. So mm-hmm. he would always have like a routine score and I've applied this to even like business and like to do lists and stuff like that. Right. Um, it would, we would even have a, Hey, we'd print a scorecard and the score for the round, like every hole you would mark the score and it would be more about how dialed into your routine were you not what happened to the shot. And that you, was the basis of the score. Exactly. And you, yeah, you come completely numb to results. Like you don't care about results. And looking back how that really affected me going forward in just life and business and other sports and stuff like that really changed my mindset at age 18, 19 and in a, in a real positive way, because even in business, I have major goals with two fit, but if you're worried about the results, you get really hung up on that. And you've, you've got to focus on the routine, you mm-hmm. know, and if your routine is dialed down, dialed in, mm-hmm. the results will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And that's absolutely right. That, that in fact, focusing on the big outcome thing, uh, can be paralyzing. It can actually disrupt performance. Um, it can lead you astray. So it was, it has unintended negative consequences. In fact, what shifting topics a little bit, because this is the two fit podcast, um, so you talk about centenarians in your book and pe- people that live to be 100 years old. And I've read quite a bit on this side on the nutrition piece because I think that's where a lot of the focus is. But I love that you really focus in this book on the mindset and how people view their aging. We, we touched on that a little bit earlier, but how people view their age. But mm-hmm. what's really going on with these societies and groups of people that are living to be 100 plus years old? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you look at cultures and there are many, you know, different cultures in which people are living, you know, many people are living to a hundred, there are some commonalities. So as you noted, certainly nutrition, you know, exercise, you know, lack of obesity, et cetera. Those of course clearly play a role. You know, they're not cultures in which lots of people, you know, eat a lot of fast food and are obese and, you know, smoke and so on. 
But there are two other things that are that you see very consistently in these cultures. One, there's a positive mindset about aging. Um, people often work, you know, they're not just looking to retire. They often continue working in, you know, whatever their field is. Maybe after they officially have stopped work, they continue, you know, volunteering in, you know, town government or farming or, you know, whatever. So, so people aren't sort of seeing as like, oh, you can only work till 65 or, you know, 70 and then, you know, life is over, you know, et cetera. So you see people doing meaningful things uh, with their lives and having a positive view that, you know, older people they have huge amounts to contribute because look, they have this wealth of knowledge and life experience. So surely they would be, you know, really important advisors to the community, to the town, to their, you know, family members, etc. The other thing you see very consistently in these cultures is a strong focus on relationships. So you see people having, you know, uh, family members often, you know, the expression, it takes a village that you see, family members living close together. So grandparents and grandchildren, you see people uh, connecting with their neighbors, connecting with, you know, long-term friends, spending time with them, socializing. So you basically see a really strong social network and not just with an immediate family, but also sort of a broader network. And then you see this positive mindset about aging and those two things together um, are also really important. So, so yes, nutrition, exercise, you know, et cetera, um, important, but so are these other two dimensions. Yeah. Um, you, you talk about too, how religion kind of plays a role in that, in that communal aspect. Um, what, like, what, what are some of the typical areas that you're seeing most centenarians, uh, live around the world? Like what, what are some of these main regions? Yeah. So it, it's actually like a little bit scattered in terms of pockets. So um, there's a part of Italy in which you see people living very long lives. There's a part of Japan in which you see people living very long lives. Um, but there's also a part of Costa Rica. I mean, so it's not sort of predictive of a specific, you know, geographic area. And it seems to be have more to do with the specifics of that culture. And often there are, you know, smaller towns, villages, so you see that, but it's not, you know, exclusive to Asian or, you know, Western Europe or, you know, whatever. You can see pockets of these kinds of behaviors all really throughout the world. And what's so encouraging about that is it means that it's not exclusive to having a certain climate or a certain food supply or a certain level of income, you know, et cetera. It really has to do with broader um, cultural norms being adopted within these, you know, small groups. Yeah, you make a great point there. The fact that the diets are different, the ecosystems a little different, all that stuff, different time zones. I mean, you name it, but one underlying that common denominator is the culture and the community and belief, you know, like that, that's a very, that's a common denominator there. And that means we could all adopt that, right? right? Yeah. It's, all, it's, it's feasible. What are some key takeaways that, that, that people can kind of practice because it, it, it is sad. Like so many neighbors now, like neighborhoods, I live in Texas, you know, in Fort Worth, it's a very friendly, like we still talk to our neighbors, but I know there are so many, um, and it's not like that throughout all of Texas, I would assume, but it's like we've moved into such an insular society and in, in such an insular mindset where I'm in a rush. I got to get my coffee. I got to get to work. I get to the office, you know, got to get the kids to bed at night. And like, there's no time. There's just like, no, there, nobody's breathing, you know, what? Mm-hmm. So with having that happen, like what, where can people be the change or, or, practice that in their life when maybe the kind of our current society is inhibiting that in some ways. Yeah, there was a great um, survey done, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, I think it was a Pew Foundation report, and examined the um, number of minutes each month people spend socializing with friends. And it was just like a tiny little amount. I mean, it was like 19 minutes or something. Don't quote me on that, but it was a very, very small amount. And, and what they said has really changed is that people used to 
really prioritize socializing with friends, whether that was being in a bowling league or, you know, belonging to your, you know, neighborhood pool or, you know, country club, or whether that was, you know, your religious organization and, you know, the Bible study associated with that or whatever. But people used to really prioritize sort of socializing with friends, having dinner parties, you know, et cetera. And that now, People are like, I just don't have the time and, you know, got travel soccer and this and I'm too busy and I'm traveling, et cetera. And so I think a really simple thing people can do is to prioritize socializing with friends. So my husband and I make a point of every month, at least once, we either invite a couple to our house, we set up a, you know, a reservation at a restaurant, you know, to, to join another couple or two. And we, and we sketch it out. Like we literally are like, okay, which weekends could we do? And let's, you know, email some people, let's text some people. Um, because part of the issue is that we can kind of create our community, right? We can create our community in some way. And maybe that's your neighborhood. You know, maybe that's the people who live, you know, right around you. Maybe it's your church group. Um, maybe it's the, you know, parents of your kids' friends. I mean, you know, there could be different ways in which you find that. But trying to find ways in our lives of deliberately creating some sort of social connection is just extremely important. Yeah, um, obviously couldn't agree more. You you have a little s- snippet in the book, too, that's that's about find happy friends. And I think that's so important um, because again, like, unfortunately, a lot of people are unhappy. And I think being aware of who your friends are, and if they're negatively affecting you, you know, find happy friends, right? Um, Happiness is contagious. And we can all think about people in our lives who, when we're with those people, we feel down and depressed and, you know, more negative. And um, when we're with people who are optimistic and positive, it just kind of brings us up. And we can think about that with our friends, but we can even think about it in terms of, you know, um, smiling at somebody in an airport or, you know, the cashier or the waiter or waitress and just sort of how do you treat other people around you is really important. Yeah, I, I said at the beginning of the show, my mind went in a million different directions just because of the amazing topics in the book. Um, another like real key point I thought was was very well uh, spoken about in the book was essentially things versus experiences. And my wife and I were actually just having a conversation about this the other day, um, how we really work to just value experiences so much more than things. Like, cause we, you know, nobody really needs things, you know, mm-hmm. like to, to live and to sustain, you don't need the brand new car. You, you know, you want the brand new car. And when you think in your life back to like what memories first pop up to you or when you're telling a story to a friend or a family member, they're 99.9% of the time, they're experiences. You know, like I know for me in the last five years, you know, I've traveled a decent amount. I don't, I don't remember anything substantial that like just a wow thought that was not an experience. You know, river rafting, hiking that mountain, biking, like a, mm-hmm. a great dinner and, and laughs with friends. Like those experiences are so rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that we undervalue in our society, right? That we think about, I'm going to save money so I can have, you know, a new bigger television or, you know, the latest iPhone or, you know, what the new purse or shoes or whatever that, that we so much prioritize spending money on possessions And yet the reality is that when we think about those, exactly what you just said, when we reflect back on things, no one's like, oh my gosh, my big TV, I love my big TV, you know, et cetera. It's just like, there's your TV. And, and, and yet we think back and reflect on, um, if you think about what we take photographs of, no one's like, I'm going to take a picture of my new purse and, you know, I'm going to put that in a, you know, display on my, you know, fireplace mantle, you know, my new shoes, you know, whatever. What do we do? We photograph, you know, trips, um, birthday celebrations, you know, parties, um, concerts we've gone to, you know, I mean, just all sorts of different things that are so meaningful. Um, they are events. And that's what that when you think about what people reflect back on, overwhelmingly, that's what people think back. And and I think that's really under acknowledged and underappreciated in terms of how we choose to spend money. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's 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 something my wife and I 
talk talk about often of just how can we how can we build in it doesn't have to be this amazing vacation you know, it doesn't have to you don't have to travel across the world but little things you know like there's a really cool it's called coyote driving in fort worth like it's really cool outdoors old nostalgic feel like doing stuff like that you know for a night is um that's an experience you know it doesn't cost a ton of money but it's so different than just sitting on the couch and renting a movie after the kids go to bed i mean or you know it's um how can you create from little experiences to where you where you choose to spend bigger money? Because, like you said, you're not when you're 90, you're not going to be looking back having a story with your grandkids talking about that amazing new phone you bought when you were 36. No, and and the other thing is that we adapt so quickly to the new belongings. And initially, it's exciting, and then it's just your phone or it's just your watch. So you don't get the sort of consistent benefit from it. And it also really ties in, I think, to something we were talking about earlier which is this comparison thing that often our belongings are about this pursuit of materialism and like is my you know car as nice as my neighbor's car or is my you know phone the latest model like my friends have or whatever and that sort of comparison isn't helpful whereas when we're talking about experiences it's often like this experience is personally meaningful to me you know uh, somebody likes the opera somebody else likes uh you know bruce springsteen concert somebody else likes you know going to see the joffrey ballet you know whatever experiences are very personal about what makes you happy yeah they pay in perpetuity they, they just keep paying dividends over and over and over we've talked a lot about this this whole mindset shift and what are some of the actions people can take that are very simple that they can start implementing you know today to really work on their mindset yeah so i think there's two sort of broad categories of things so one set of things are that people can start to change their thoughts so this idea of reframing so when something goes bad i mean the example you gave earlier this is a disaster or is it an opportunity right so i think one set of things is really examining um to what extent can we change and think wait is this life or death or is this an opportunity how can i frame this you know am i gonna is this gonna matter to me in a year you know that this you know uh, thing that happened and so i think one set of things is developing more positive thoughts again some people naturally do this oh i'm stuck in traffic there's the wonderful sunset but many of us don't naturally do that so i think one becoming aware when you're doing cycles of negativity overreacting to things being excessively negative and trying to stop yourself and trying to reframe things in a more positive way um, is, is one set of things the other set of things are actually behaviors that we can do in so sometimes we maybe aren't really feeling happy but we know that there are some behaviors that we can do that will make us happy so this is almost the like fake it till you make idea um maybe just do some behaviors that we know work even if you don't feel it in your heart um and for me i take that example of i often don't really want to go to the gym i often am like oh there's a thousand things i could do from you know washing the dishes to you know getting a pedicure to writing a book you know or whatever um and i could do all those things instead of going to the gym but you know what if i go to the gym i really will feel happy that i went to the gym and right. so I'm going to lace up my shoes and I'm going to go. And, and there's an example where telling yourself, okay, even if I don't really want to do this, I know if I do this, I will feel better. And there's lots of evidence for specific behaviors that we can do in our daily lives that will make us happier. What are, what are some of those like specific behaviors or like strategies Sure. Um, so one is, is in fact exercise, as I just described. People who exercise feel happier. Um, obviously, they're healthier, but it, it increases a chemical in our body, endorphins, that actually do make us feel happier um, as well as healthier. So exercise is a really important one. Uh, two, get enough sleep. And maybe that's a hard thing to say to the father of two kids under the age of two. So maybe I should just gloss over this one. But um, but people who get enough sleep feel happier. Um, they feel less stressed. There's actually interesting research looking at rates of marital conflict, um, which are higher when people are sleep deprived. Um, and so uh, getting enough sleep is a really important thing we can do. Spending time in nature. Uh, that really works for lots of people. And that could be, you know, going for a walk. Um, it could be actually even having like indoor plants around your home or office have, have been associated with um, improving mood. Um, another key one, doing something for somebody else. 
Mm. Um, that could be donating to charity. Uh, it could be volunteering in your community or for a cause that you care about. It could be doing a random act of kindness, you know, for somebody. And so doing, you know, small things that are meaningful uh, to other people also helps make us feel better. So those are some simple things. Yeah, I think that um, that giving mindset can be real powerful for for people because you're obviously doing something amazing for someone else, but it also does benefit you. You know, you, you feel good about it and it, it's encouraging and uplifting and, and it does change your mindset. And I think that, that also with that kind of that taking a break in the day and, and realizing, noticing other people and like, Hey, where can I maybe do something nice? Like it, it, it pays dividends on both sides of the fence Absolutely. for sure. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's, it's also contagious. So if you do something nice for somebody else, they may in fact do something nice for the next person. We've all heard those examples of like, you know, the Starbucks drive through line in which one person pays for the next person, the next person, the next yeah, person. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. You know, 30 people in a row, you know, do that. And, and so there's just an example of when we do nice things for other people, whether it's, you know, paying for their coffee or smiling or whatever, it also has a ripple effect, which makes our society nicer. There was like a something I read in a book years ago. It was like, hey, when if you're feeling down or you're frustrated or whatever, smile for 10 seconds. Just smile for 10 seconds. Even if you don't want to, like I said, even if you don't want to go to the gym. But this is so simple. You could do it anywhere. You could sit and just smile. Because when you smile, and you probably know a lot more about this um, given your expertise, but when you smile, it releases certain chemicals without you even trying. You just smile. Right. There's a wonderful study that, that illustrates that in which they had people come in um, and they had them hold chopsticks in their teeth in one of three different facial expressions. And one of them was a big smile. One of them was like a small smile. One of them was a neutral expression, you know, flat expression. And then they had them put their hands in a bucket of freezing cold ice water. And what they found was that people who held their facial expression in a big smile actually reported less pain from the ice water and left their hand in the water significantly longer. Um, and so that suggests that not only does smiling make us feel better in terms of happier, it also changes how our body responds to pain. So it's a really remarkable effect. And again, though that's not smiling being driven by being happy. That's just forcing yourself to smile actually leads to these benefits, which yeah, it's is crazy. Wild, it's right? just yeah, wild. Really, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was something else that kind of, it, I think it was the same book or p topic I was reading when it was like the smile for 10 seconds thing. It was also, you could smile in the mirror for, you know, 10, 10 or more seconds. And that, that kind of like, I remember the, I don't remember a lot about when I was reading that, but it was also something practicing uh, like self-compassion, self-love. You kind of got this double effect because you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're smiling and um, that could possibly have even more more benefits. Yeah, which makes sense, right? I mean, because it's kind of, again, like the fake it till you make it idea. If you do this kind of active smiling, it's changing um, how your brain processes uh, different events um, and it, it makes you feel happier and it's cyclic. Yeah, I love it. Dr. Sanderson, this has been a joy. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Like I said, I love the book. Dr. Sanderson, where, where can they find the book? Where can they find out more information? Yeah, so um, the best place is probably my website, which is sandersonspeaking.com. So sandersonspeaking.com. And uh, the book, I think, is available hopefully everywhere, um, but is available, you know, on Amazon, you know, et cetera, independent bookstores, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. Um, and my website also gives uh, – videos for free, you know, of, of talks I've given on happiness and health, et cetera. So lots of different information there as well. Thank you for this opportunity to share this really important stuff about being happier and healthier for all of us. Yeah, it is. No, thank you for doing it. And thank you for coming on the show because this, the book is awesome. People, you should go out and grab it because it's an actionable book. I love some of the, the, the charts you have in there and working through and evaluating like your stress response and like your states and stuff like that. And then I love how you wrap up each chapter with like these key takeaways and like action points. I think that's super important because yeah. this is not a book on, oh, just feel good and like optimism. This is a real like there's a lot of context in this book, and that's what I thought really made it made it so great. Good. Well, thank you. And again, I I wrote the book because I wanted people to be able to use it, and I wanted people to get real and practical, concrete things, steps they could take in their own lives to feel happier and to be healthier.
Right on. Well, Dr. Sanderson, again, thank you. It's been a joy. Nice to meet you. Take care. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Sanderson. Um, again, appreciate you tuning in. It uh, feels good to get my sea legs back under me with the podcast and have it up and rolling again. Super pumped. Um, if you have any questions, feedback, comments, etc., please feel free to leave them. Um, you can also, something really cool, somewhere, um, this is new for the podcast. I'm hosting the podcast on Anchor. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but anchor.fm, it's also available in the App Store. Um, it has a feature that allows you to leave a voice message. Real simple, it's easy to use. Um, very cool feature. I'll probably try to use more of that in the future, but if you do want to leave a voice message or you want to ask a question about a certain show, you can do that using the Anchor app. You just search the Two Fit Podcast and there's a button there to send a message. Really cool. Um, anyway, appreciate you checking it out. Till next time, stay awesome.